It was a triumphant Tim Gitzel at the Chemical Conference call. If you didn't hear it last week, February 8th, oftentimes the Chemical Conference call is informative. Little observations like, you know, uranium pricing is notoriously opaque. Little observations like that. We didn't get a ton of that. So what I actually did here is I got the ChatGPT summary. And hello and welcome to the Northern Miner podcast. My name is Adrian Pocabelli. There is an absolute ton to get through today. Stuff that isn't even making the news. You know, another country in the Sahel is starting to have election issues, uh, this time Senegal. We'll get into that in a second, and we actually have the State Department press release on that. All to say, like, things aren't even making it to my front page here. Sometimes it's just these citizen journalists on YouTube. It is a golden age in media right now. And speaking of which, only in 2024, maybe late 2023, could you have asked ChatGPT to give you a very quick summary of Cameco's results of the conference call. And here it is, supply chain challenges and mine depletion leading to a tight market, expected to continue into the next decade. So things we've been hearing about, frankly, across the mining sector, but also in uranium. So supply chain challenges and mine depletion leading to a tight market, expected to continue into the next decade. And I thought to myself, like, couldn't you just imagine this with almost any commodity when circumstances change? even nickel. And we have a ton of nickel stories. Again, you know, the metal that won't go away, it's nickel. And again, we have several stories, but let's continue here with Cameco. Significant improvement in financial performance metrics, including higher sales volume, realized prices, net earnings, adjusted net earnings and cash from operations, healthy contract book with 205 million pounds of uranium committed long-term to 37 worldwide customers. That's pretty impressive. 37 worldwide customers. That is a lot. Focus on disciplined long-term contracting and strategic market positioning. I listened, and yeah, there was a point in the conference call when the analysts started asking questions, and there's this issue of, as far as I understood it, why not sell into the spot market? And very interestingly, both Tim Gitzel and the CFO there, Grant Isaac, both poo-pooed the notion of selling into the spot market because all you're going to do is lower the spot price and then all of the contracting that occurs happens on whatever the spot price is. So it's almost like the whole uranium sector, to a certain degree, understands the game a little bit better now after being in the wilderness there for quite a while. So, you know, they're very calculating in how they are, you know, releasing and really distributing their product. Also, finally here, focus on discipline, long-term contracting, and strategic market positioning, and also talk of extending Cigar Lake mine life to 2036 and evaluating MacArthur River Key Lake expansion. So now you don't need to listen to it. I did it for you there. And if you do, uh, there's even a YouTube. ChatGPT linked to a YouTube channel that had the conference call. I'm not sure if that was supposed to be up there, but pretty impressive. Now, also in the news, let's actually move on. Uh, just a quick update here, as I try and kind of load up with information, these intros here. Oftentimes there's plenty of opinion here, but I thought let's like really just kind of try and stack this with some very hopefully useful information for you. And so coming up on February 14th, we have Barrick Gold's conference call. On the 15th, we have Kinross Gold. And then we have Hecla Mining also on the 15th, Royal Gold, Agnico Eagle, 
on the 16th, BHP Group on the 19th, and Rio Tinto on the 21st, and of course, Newmont on February 22nd. So in the next two weeks, we're going to get a lot of the heavy hitters in the mining industry. So what I'm going to try and do, as far as I can get ChatGPT to reduce these summaries, wouldn't it be great if we could just get a quick, you know, overview of these conference calls in, you know, two minutes, courtesy of our friends at OpenAI. So we'll see what happens there, but that is what I'm thinking about. Feel free to leave a comment if you have a thought about it. So that is what's going on in earnings season. Again, a triumphant Tim Gitzel after wandering in the desert there for years. You know, just finally on this point, you have to give Tim Gitzel, again, president and CEO of Cameco, you have to give him credit for keeping his job. I mean, think of how long the Cameco share price languished for. And so Tim Gitzel does deserve some credit for, frankly, for surviving. I would think that at certain points during that very, I mean, how long has Tim Gitzel been CEO of Cameco? Since June 2011. So to a certain degree, we could argue this is post-Fukushima as far as I can see here. And so maybe that was even the reason that Tim Gitzel came in was chaos in the stock price. But now I'm just speculating here. Let's move on. We have a lot to get through here at Senegal. Now, you didn't see a ton of press on this. At least I didn't. Again, I learned this courtesy of just, you know, individuals in the continent of Africa putting out YouTube news on the continent. And so thanks to them and the Africa Report there, a podcast that's only five minutes, I learned what happened, you know, in Senegal, there is an election crisis because the president, Macky Sall, has basically circumvented the Constitution to delay the election until December. Interestingly, after the American election, perhaps that's irrelevant, but kind of noticeable in my mind. I mean, why December, right? And it seems like quite a ways off. And so there's a BBC article here. I just want to read a couple of lines so you can get a sense of President Saul's justification here. President Saul has justified his move, saying time is needed to resolve a dispute over who is eligible to stand as a presidential candidate after several opposition contenders were barred. Right. Unfortunately, what's going on in the U.S., to a certain degree, justified or not, I'm not here to weigh in on that, but this legal threat that's happening with Trump in the U.S., again, justifiable or not, my point is the fact that it's happening at all. There's always this echo effect and what you might even call a bit of a copycat effect in the larger world. Just by virtue of the fact that the U.S. is the leading country in the world, this has a reverberation. One could argue, I mean, there is a kind of similarity here. Of course, there's nothing new, unfortunately, about locking up your opponents. But here we're seeing it. And so here's the State Department press release, state.gov, postponement of election in Senegal. Matthew Miller here, department spokesman. The United States is deeply concerned by actions taken to delay Senegal's February 25th presidential election, which run contrary to Senegal's strong democratic tradition. We are particularly alarmed by reports of security forces removing by force parliamentarians who opposed a bill to delay the election, resulting in National Assembly vote that cannot be considered legitimate given the conditions under which it took place. The United States urges the government of Senegal to move forward and its presidential election in accordance 
with the Constitution and electoral laws. We also call on the Senegalese government to restore full internet access immediately and to ensure the freedoms of peaceful assembly and expression, including for members of the press, are fully respected. The United States will remain engaged with all parties and regional partners in the days ahead. So that is the U.S. response. So they're not impressed and they're not buying this excuse that the president of Senegal is giving. Now, just finally on this point, because, of course, Senegal is a part of the Sahel. If you look on a map, and I actually recommend you do this, an interesting unconscious logic begins. Because, of course, in the Sahel, we have seen there are three military juntas that run Niger, which we saw in the summer. And, of course, Burkina Faso and Mali all joined, by the way. And interestingly, to the west of Mali is Senegal. There's quite a large border there. And again, you just start seeing on an unconscious level, you do start to see the beginnings of a kind of block of sorts. And so just very quickly on this here. So ChatGPT, once again, what is the geopolitical importance of Senegal? Democratic stability, it has a great tradition and reputation for its democratic governance. Strategic location on the westernmost point of Africa, access to the Atlantic Ocean. The port of Dakar is one of the most important ports in Africa, serving not only Senegal, but also landlocked neighbors in the Sahel region. I also looked up what are the major natural resource projects there, and there is one we're familiar with here, the Sabodala Masawa Gold Project, which is in the Seydhu region. This is a gold project, and it's Senegal's largest gold mine. Of course, don't forget when we had the CEO of Fortuna Silver on, who is describing that region as pretty much the richest region once you get rid of the borders of these countries for gold in the world. So no small deal here with this gold mine. It's not just any gold mine. And the background on it, it's been in operation since 2009, and it was acquired by Taranga Gold, now part of Endeavor Mining after a merger from Barrick Gold. It's one of the highest grade undeveloped open pit gold reserves in Africa. So a large-scale gold operation. Of course, there's also zircon, there's iron ore, and there's another gold mine, and there's a graphite project, which actually is related to Nouveau Monde. Now, I don't want to make too much of a deal with this. Of course, there is an election which is scheduled for December. But just to inform us here, because of course, our bailiwick is natural resources here, and apparently there's energy off the coast as well which is also interesting. But, you know, when you look at the map, for me, it's hard not to see this, what I'm calling an unconscious logic of seeing all of these countries grouped together, and now they have a deep water port. So pretty interesting there. Finally here in our intro, EU and US to align global minerals push against China's supply grip. This is Bloomberg here via mining.com to start us out here. I don't want to go too long here, but it's pretty interesting. The U.S. and the European Union are in talks to merge a core area of their efforts to engage suppliers of critical minerals in resource-rich nations, seeking to streamline their push against China's dominance and materials key for future technologies. And this fits right into our discussion, and I'm very pleased we have Ron Birnbaum back on the show for our feature content to discuss how exploration in Canada may suffer as a result of removing this flow-through share financing, which is basically a tax-friendly way 
for you know wealthy investors to invest in the mining industry, which has been a boon for the exploration sector. So we're going to learn all about that in our wonderful future interview with the very friendly Ron Birnbaum. I'm pleased to bring back on the show. So that is coming up. But I want us to consider this idea that there's kind of a bit of a difficulty and strangulation and exploration financing going on within the tax structure in Canada. Meanwhile, in the bigger picture, we have, you know, here's the EU and the US, you know, trying to figure out new initiatives on a very large scale here, a mineral security partnership forum which would align outreach efforts to buyers in developed countries and resource-rich nations to cooperate on projects and policies. Now, I think we already knew this, right? We already know there's movement towards this you know, strategic partnership. I think what's significant about this news story, though, is it's getting formalized. Government officials are taking planes you know, to meet specifically for this. It's gone beyond the rhetoric stage, and now there are what seemed to me formal meetings in order to figure out how this is actually going to take place. So it is starting to take on a new, deeper, and we might call realer dimension here. And just finally on this, there was another press release that came out February 9th. So that story from Bloomberg was February 9th. And then we had another State Department press release, inaugural C5 plus one critical minerals dialogue among the United States and Kazakhstan and the Kyrgyz Republic, Tajikistan, Turkmenistan, and Uzbekistan. So critical minerals front and center here. And just for those in Canada who are listening, I'm going to read the final paragraph. Among the initiatives discussed, the United States emphasized opportunities through the Minerals Security Partnership and Partnership for Global Infrastructure and Investment. In the lead-up to the Mining and Exploration Convention in Toronto, Canada, Called Prospectors and Developers Association of Canada, the United States welcomed input from the C5 countries to promote new partnership and investment opportunities and efforts to continue the dialogue through national coordinators within the C5 plus one framework. So all to say, there's a State Department, you know, it sounds like they're going to be visiting PDAC. And of course, PDAC is, I think, the world's largest mining conference, definitely the largest in Canada. It is a global mining conference. It happens in Toronto in early March here. So interesting to see the State Department mention PDAC. The last thing I want to mention here is this Mineral Security Partnership. There was a link to what it is and the frameworks and everything. Again, it seems to me the whole strategy is getting formalized under this Mineral Security Partnership, also known as MSP. And this is what I finally wanted to point out here. Again, I want us to consider this within the context of our feature content here with Ron Birnbaum. MSP partners, including Australia, Canada, Finland, France, Germany, India, Italy, Japan, Norway, the Republic of Korea, Sweden, the UK, the United States, and the European Union, are all a part of this mineral security partnership, as outlined here on the State Department website, where there is a special page where these 13 countries that I just listed are collaborating. And I looked at that list, and the only two countries that scream resources to me are Australia and Canada. Yes, Finland, you know, there is some stuff. France, I guess there's some stuff. But, you know, Germany, apparently India has stuff. But Italy, Japan, 
you know, Norway has energy, but you see what I'm saying here in terms of metals. I would say one would assume that Australia and Canada are going to be playing pivotal roles here. So all to say, you know, what seems like kind of a trifle in this larger conversation, this flow through share structure that Ron Birnbaum is talking about, as he was saying, the exploration sector, things are bad now, but they look like they're going to get a whole lot worse in Canada if this gets pushed through, which he's saying it's looking very much like it will be pushed through. As he was saying more than once, the government is desperate for money, to paraphrase. So with that, we have a wonderful CEO spotlight coming on with William Sheriff, executive chairman of Encore Energy, who discusses the company's in-situ uranium project in Texas. Very interesting discussion on in-situ and what Encore Energy has lined up. So a wonderful show ahead and many fascinating news stories that we haven't even touched on yet here. A rock'em sock'em episode for you. If you want to find us online, you can find us at northernminer.com. You can find us on Twitter at Northern Miner and on Instagram at The Northern Miner and on Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, where we also host these podcasts and wherever podcasts are available, including Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and SoundCloud. And with that, let's turn to William Sheriff, Executive Chairman of Encore Energy, for this week's CEO Spotlight. Joining us today, I'm very pleased to welcome William Sheriff, Executive Chairman of Encore Energy Corporation, to this week's CEO Spotlight. William, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you, and it's great to meet you. Uh, it sounds like you have a very interesting history in this business, Bill, and I appreciate you letting me call you Bill. So tell us then, for our listeners here who may not be familiar with Encore Energy Corporation, what are you doing at Encore Energy? Just give us a little bit of background on the company, if you can. Sure. Well, Encore is based around our uh, team, which is the deepest bench strength in terms of production of uranium in the United States, certainly, and uh, would fare well against any comparison in the world. We did just have our grand opening for our first producer in South Texas at the Rosita plant. So uh, we've been in production since November with the grand opening ceremony just last week, actually. We're busy working on our second producer, which will come online here in the next few months, certainly in the first half of the year. And that is at Alta Mesa, which is a much larger project also in South Texas. Okay, excellent. So as far as the company then, when did it get put together? Tell us a little bit more just about the company itself and a little, just a tiny sure. bit about the history. Sure. The company uh, was founded after, well, it's got a long lineage, starting with Energy Metals Corp, which I co-founded with uh, Paul Matissic, and then uh, went on to Uranium One, our acquirer's board for a few years, left uh, right before Fukushima to start Encore. Perhaps not the best timing with uh, Fukushima, but we were able to fund ourselves and uh, had roughly a decade to plan our future, because certainly after Fukushima, it wasn't for another 10 years or so until the nuclear renaissance has really started to kick in. By that time, we were ready to hit the ground running. We acquired two of only 11 in-situ plants. would point out all Encore does is in-situ. We really aren't a mining company so much as a metals recovery. We do everything through wells, pumps, and plumbing. And put together the strongest team and picked up two of the 11 plants. The Alta Mesa plant that I just mentioned is going into production here in the next uh, few months is uh, certainly the larger of the three. And we picked it up in January of 2023. 
So with three of the 11 plants, a deep staff and uh, plenty of viable resources ready to go into production, we don't do exploration, we do production-ready assets, and our future looks quite bright. Indeed, it's an exciting market right now. And just for people that might not be familiar, if you could just give as brief a definition as you can on in situ for people that might not understand, what is in situ and how is it different? Sure. People think of metals as being mined, which in most instances is correct. Big yellow trucks, giant excavations or underground mining, tailings, facilities, uh, waste piles, uh, you know, all sorts of the less desirable environmental impacts of, of metal recovery. Compare and contrast that to us. We simply drill holes into a sandstone that's underwater that has uranium in it, pump the water to the surface, add oxygen, re-inject that, and the oxygen dissolves the uranium, much like salt or sugar might dissolve in your cup of water. And once it's in solution, we pump it to the surface and run it through an ion exchange plant, recovering the uranium, refortifying the groundwater with more oxygen to uh, continue another leach cycle. And, and this goes on for several years on a single well field. Okay, excellent. Now, in terms of what you're working on, you mentioned a few projects there. So is there a flagship? Boil it down for, you know, your average investor who might be interested in, you know, uranium. How would you even describe your company? Is it a uranium producer? Uh, give us a yes. little bit more about the projects you're working on and what you're actually doing. Are you producing uranium, I guess? We are one of the few. In fact, the U.S. consumes 47 or 48 million pounds a year against a uh, net domestic production of under a half a million pounds last year and as little as 9,000 uh, two years ago. So there's a screaming demand for domestic U.S. uranium for the world's largest uh, nuclear electricity fleet. And uh, we, we aim to provide that. Right now, half of that or roughly half of that import comes through the port of St. Petersburg. Not that Mr. Putin produces it, but he certainly controls it in terms of transportation. And so that leaves the U.S. vulnerable, and that's where we're uh, jumping in to uh, fill that breach along with uh, several others. But uh, as I say, we're the first in Texas, second in the U.S. back into production, and we'll be dropping our second project into production here the next few months. So the in situ being far more environmentally favorable, we're much quicker to permitting because obviously all we're doing is injecting oxygen into the groundwater, less subjections, much quicker to clean up. All we do is quit injecting oxygen, run the water for a couple of years, and uh, we're essentially reclaimed. So a bit of an oversimplification, but that's uh, that's really the uh, the way to look at it is non-invasive mining, I guess, if you were. But really, we're, we're not even regulated by the mining authorities. We're much more akin to the oil and gas business. You know, that's what it sounded like when you were describing, you know, pumping it out of the ground there in the in situ process. It's very interesting. So just then to clarify as it stands then, so is your main project then in Texas and you are producing uranium? We are producing uranium and our main project is a little tough to pick, but uh, Alta Mesa is certainly the one that's head and shoulders above the others. It has a two million pound a year uh, back end capacity and is sitting on a 200,000 acre or 80,000 hectare mineral estate. Uh, that is a ranch that we have all the mineral rights to under control. You compare and contrast that to Kingsville and Rosita, our other two plants, all of which are within a 100 mile radius of Corpus Christi, our headquarters. Uh, they're both 800,000 pound a year plants and uh, design capacity. And we'll be, uh, Rosita is the one that's in production now. We'll be ramping that up over the next years. Our goal is to have a three million pound a year run rate out of our Texas operations by the end of three years, such that the fourth year would see over three million pounds produced. 
Excellent. And so what does that do then to your balance sheet? Like, do you already have contracts then where you're, I assume you have to deliver this uranium somewhere. Tell us about just like, in a sense, the the other side of it. So you've extracted it. Like, what are you doing with it once you have it? Well, it's a, it's an interesting story and one that we'll touch on lightly. But uh, here again, there's a lot to it. It's the fuel cycle. We're at the very beginning end of it. We deliver our product, which is drummed yellow cake, to uh, the converter in Metropolis, Illinois. They then convert it uh, with hydrofluoric acid into UF6. It then goes to a third facility, the enricher, where they enrich it up to uh, the percentage grade that will fuel a, a nuclear power plant or higher if they're going to go to uh, small modular reactors, uh, which is HALU. That's uh, four times as rich of fuel as they put in the conventional reactors. So our part of the fuel cycle, which takes about two and a half years, is over very quickly. And once we deliver our yellow cake to Metropolis, we get paid and we're done. The utilities actually contract each leg of that fuel cycle separately. So it's a rather involved subject, but uh, utilities are our prime customer. We do have four contracts in place currently. And we've got uh, about 3.6 million pounds contracted over the next five or six years. And uh, we want to maintain a certain level of exposure to contracts so that we have a stable, predictable cash flow, ensuring our uh, viability as an ongoing business, as well as maintaining a significant portion of our production uh, with uh, with an eye to the spot market, which, of course, has been uh, been very, very uh, buoyant over the last year, uh, now currently over $100 a pound. The spot market's a little thinner than contracts, to say the least, so we have to watch that very closely and uh, align our uh, revenue sources with where the bulk of the transactions occur, and that is a contract market. Okay, excellent. Now, just to back up a second then, so in terms of permitting and everything, is that more or less settled, at least for the flagship, or is there still, in a sense, kind of uh, I's to dot, T's to cross uh, on that side of things? Well, our first plant and well field are fully permitted and operational. It took us 20 months from the day we actually filed a, a major amendment uh, in the state of Texas uh, till the day we were in production. 20 months. That's uh, pretty favorable against any jurisdiction, I would say. And we are in a similar situation at Alta Mesa. We're ready to go. Uh, we're fully permitted there as well. And the Kingsville plant is fully permitted. Uh, we do have some additional short-term permitting on individual well fields outside of those properties as we'll use them as satellite feed for the plants. That is, you can actually have a remote ion exchange set up 100, 200, 300, maybe even 400 miles from your plant with current economics and uh, be able to take the coated resin after the resin exchange process back to your central plant. So some of those satellite fields will need to be permitted. Here again in Texas and Wyoming, we have a very unique advantage in that they're called agreement states. And what that means is that they have an agreement with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission to handle all of the NRC's work. In essence, we do not deal with the NRC in terms of dealing with uh, our, our production plans in Texas or Wyoming. If you go outside of those two states, you know, compare and contrast that to, a, let's say, a, perhaps a Montana or, or uh, something like that, you might very well be looking at a decade or more to permit a project in the U.S. just because you're going through the federal government and then the state, whereas Texas and Wyoming, both very energy positive, very red states, uh, very pro-business, they move the projects along much quicker. And you know, I think you can expect within a two to three year period on even a brand new project, uh, probably two and a half to three year timeline, you, you can look at a production uh, situation. And that's why most of our assets are concentrated in Wyoming and uh, Texas, and the first three years solely will be dedicated to Texas, and, and then we'll be expanding into Wyoming. 
Well, I could understand that it only taking 20 months. I mean, that truly is astonishing in this industry, especially when you're dealing with something like uranium. So for the investors out there, then what is the upside on this project? In a sense, what is your message for investors? You know, do you already know everything that's there? Is there exploration work going on? What's your message for investors? Well, there's always upside, especially when you have something as large as a 200,000 acre property. I mean, that's just immense. And when you start looking at something like that, we define roll fronts, which in essence are underground stream shaped structures that are holding the uranium. A whole other subject is to roll fronts, so we won't get into detail there. But uh, when you find one of those, you tend to establish its uh, length by uh, drilling fences perpendicular to it. And then, then you infill it as you're progressing your well field. So once you know the general direction and trend of the roll front, it's a matter of infill drilling and and uh, off you go. But you know, we have uh, you know certainly uh, several decades of of resources in front of us in terms of our uh, uh, resources that are published in the uh, on the website and in, in the uh, slide deck. Those will be continuing as we methodically define those uh, roll fronts. So lots of growth, but the key here, of course, is plants and having those plants permitted and, and operational gives us a huge advantage over uh, most of the uh, competitors in the sector. Indeed. And just as a final wrap up here, where is this going? Or in a sense, if you can kind of distill it all down for us, like where are we going? Sure. I get that question a lot. You know, what's your exit strategy in essence? When uh, the first company came along, Energy Metals Corp, our objective was to build an ongoing company. And on, the, on our way to doing that, uh, we were offered a, a deal we couldn't refuse by Uranium One to take us out at uh, a little over $1.7 billion after having come from $1.7 million 30 months earlier. So I don't think you should build uh, companies with uh, being taken over as, a, as an objective. I mean, after all, your odds are a bit uh, a bit long if that's your objective. I just view this as any other business. You, you've got to look at it in terms of dollars and cents revenue, bring in more than you spend and uh, you know know your market. And in that regard, it's not much different than the shoe market or or the car market or anything else. Uh, if you build a good company focused on, you know, increasing revenue, increasing profitability, everything else should take care of itself. And that's indeed what we've uh, what we've built here at Encore. William Sheriff, Executive Chairman of Encore Energy Corporation, thank you for joining us on this week's CEO Spotlight. My pleasure. Thank you, Adrian. And thank you once again to Encore Energy for sponsoring this week's episode of the Northern Miner podcast. Turning to the website, Mexico's president proposes ban on open pit mining, says it transgresses human rights. And this is by a staff writer at the Northern Miner. Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador, known as AMLO, has proposed a series of constitutional reforms, including a ban on open pit mining. Speaking before Parliament, López Obrador argued that open-pit mining causes severe environmental damage and uses excessive water that could be supplied to water-scarce communities. You know, this water issue has been coming up for years, and it's interesting to see it resurface again here. And we have a quote from his proposal. It is clear that open-pit mining transgresses human rights by affecting the right to a healthy environment and good health. The most significant effects are evident in the communities and towns near project areas, placing them in a situation of vulnerability and inequality, end quote. The proposal does not mention underground mining. The motion is expected to revive hostilities between the Mexican government and big industry players as the country's oldest and largest mines are open pit operations. 
In total, Mexico hosts 264 mines that extract surface minerals, most of them located in Chihuahua, Zacatecas, Sonora, and San Luis Potosi. Top producers such as Grupo Mexico's Buenavista del Cobre, Newmont's Penasquito, two of Fresnillo's gold-silver units, and several other mines owned by industrious Pinoles are open-pit operations. Since taking over in 2018, the AMLO administration has not granted any new concessions through de facto mechanisms, but without the backing of any specific laws. And finally here, the recent move adds to the uncertain investment environment in the country, whose miners were shaken back in May 2023 when Mexican senators approved a new mining law in an accelerated process without opposition legislators present. And this is also interesting. The new law also requires financial commitments or bonding and shortens the tenor of mining concessions from 50 years to 30 years with a one-time 15-year renewal possible. So it seems like property rights coming under attack in Mexico just goes to show that, you know, it only takes one election for everything to be turned upside down. Continuing on, AI-powered Zambian copper mine may become world's third largest. So a follow-up news story to the Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates-backed Cobalt Metals. This is Bloomberg News via Mining.com. Zambia may be home to the world's third largest copper mine after a startup backed by billionaire Bill Gates discovered huge deposits of the metal, the country's president said. San Francisco Bay Area-based Cobalt Metals, which used artificial intelligence to explore for materials key to the green energy transition, said this week that its discovery at the Mingomba project far surpasses existing operations in top producer Chile by copper grade. Chile is not going to be happy about this. And, you know, the press on this is that AI is the wunderkind of the situation, but I just wonder if this isn't just old-fashioned closology, as they like to call it in the mining industry here. As we were mentioning last week, let's see what President Hakinda Hichilema says. Quote, it won't be just the largest mine in Zambia, but it'll be one of the largest mines in the world. Maybe one of the top three largest mines in the world. We believe it will produce well over, when it's fully operational, 500 to 600,000 metric tons. Sounding very similar to Kamoa Kakula across the border there in the Democratic Republic of Congo. So the president is showing enthusiasm here. And yeah, exactly. So Kamoa Kakula mined almost 400,000 tons of copper last year and at full capacity will produce 620,000 tons annually. So Zambia hoping to repeat what Ivanhoe Mines did in the DRC, but with a completely different team. Interestingly, the discovery has quote-unquote huge implications for Zambia, Hichilema said. Continuing on, in Africa, billionaire Friedland's HPX signs pact for Guinea-Liberia rail link. This is Reuters via Mining.com. U.S. firm High Power Exploration, founded by mining billionaire Robert Friedland, said on Monday it had signed a letter of intent with Liberia's government and Guma Africa Group to develop rail and road projects linking it with Guinea. And looking at the map here... You know, there's Guinea actually sharing a border with Senegal, interestingly. So just below Senegal, and there's a couple of small countries nestled in there just for context. And Liberia also on the coast there below Guinea, interestingly. Continuing on, the infrastructure projects known as the Liberty Corridor are expected to support the West African region's connection to world markets 
and are estimated to cost between three and five billion dollars, HPX said in a statement. Now, this came out February 12th. Now, Senegal has become an issue in the last, let's say, week, week and a half. If I'm not mistaken here, it seems pretty fast for this to be a response, but pretty interesting, you know, just within the context of that story, a lot going on there in West Africa. Guma Africa is led by South African businessman Robert Gumedi. The Platin Corridor will have a new heavy-duty railroad connecting the Nimba district of Guinea to a new Liberian deep water port. Again, we think of Senegal and the deep water port of Dakar. Very interesting. I mean, seems very fast if this is a response to what's going on in Senegal, which maybe is potentially seen as an unreliable port, potentially. I mean, it seems like overly speculative here, but just kind of interesting. The statement did not give timelines for the projects. HPX and Guma Africa entered into negotiations with Liberia's government to agree on a framework granting exclusive rights to develop, finance, and grant operating rights to the Liberty Corridor, HPX said. The project will also upgrade an existing road and expand renewable power systems from Liberia to Guinea, as well as high-speed telecoms and infrastructure. So, pretty interesting development within the context of Senegal. Also, Another rail project in Africa also involving Ivanhoe, in other words, Robert Friedland. Ivanhoe and Trafigura to be first users of African rail through Angola. So let's bring up our map here. You know, we're going to have to start just bringing up the map. You know, if you're at a computer, it's not a terrible way to listen to this program these days. And as you see, Angola, you know, right beside Zambia and Angola and Zambia right below the massive DRC. So returning to our story, Ivanhoe Trafigura to be first users of African rail through Angola. This is Cecilia Jamasmi on the Northern Miner. Canada's Ivanhoe Mines and Commodities Trader Trafigura on Wednesday made a deal to transport copper by rail from the Democratic Republic of Congo to neighboring Angola's port of Lobito. Of course, Angola being on the western coast of the center of Africa there. So very interesting. One wonders if this is designed as a way to export the copper to either Europe or the USA. And we can even think of this within the context of what's going on in the Red Sea, can't we? Because you put it on the west coast of the center of Africa there, you don't really need to worry at all about the Houthi, interestingly, or, you know, going around the southern tip of Africa. Anyway, let's just look at a couple more paragraphs here. The agreement makes the companies the first long-term users of the Libido Atlantic Railway Corridor, an initiative backed by the U.S. government as part of its stated ambition to challenge China's dominance of critical raw materials. The Biden administration has committed $250 million to revitalize the century-old rail line linking key African mines to the Atlantic Ocean port of Libido. You know, they must be looking at that Dakar story. Again, the State Department put out that press release. They must be all pretty excited, you know, as we looked in that last story, to create potential railway link also to the deep port in Liberia, which is a new Liberian deep water port. But let's return to Angola here. The Biden administration has committed $250 million to revitalize the century-old rail line linking key African mines to the Atlantic Ocean port of Lobito. It's also funding a study to connect the railway into Zambia as part of another project expected to cost $1.6 billion. You have to take a step back and kind of be impressed 
with Robert Friedland here. I mean, he is dealing with both the Chinese, with Ivanhoe Mines and Zijin Mining running the Kamoa Kakula, sold half of it, from my understanding, maybe 49% of Kamoa Kakula to Zijin Mining. And here on the other side, you know, working with the Americans. Another chapter in Robert Friedland's storied life here. Finally here, the agreement with Ivanhoe gives it right to transport between 120 and 240,000 tons of blister anode or concentrate per year from its Kamoa Kakula mine along the Lobito Corridor. So that is interesting. It outlines a minimum term for the agreement of five years starting in 2025, following a ramp up in 2024. And finally here, in January, Ivanhoe sent a trial shipment of copper concentrate from Kamoa Kakula DRC to the port of Lobito using the new railway. The shipment demonstrated that Ivanhoe could shorten its export route from Kamoa Kakula by two-thirds down to a total round trip lasting 20 days, simplifying logistics and cutting costs. The Canadian miner had been trucking copper concentrates from Kamoa Kakula across sub-Saharan Africa to the ports of Durban in South Africa and Dar es Salaam in Tanzania, again on the eastern side of Africa, as well as Beira in Mozambique and Walvis Bay in Namibia. Break out your map, my friends. So Namibia is on the western coast. Interesting. Africa coming to the fore here in this whole discussion in such a central way. Last year, almost 90% of Kamoa Kakula's concentrates were shipped to international customers from the ports in South Africa and Tanzania, again on the eastern side of Africa, with an average round trip taking between 40 and 50 days. So this is fascinating. And don't forget, you know, Trafigur is a part of this deal. And, you know, I had this story bookmarked from three weeks ago. I simply didn't have time to get to it. But if you remember that story, it didn't get a ton of press, but there was an oil tanker that was hit in the Red Sea by the Houthi. That was a Trafigura ship, by the way. And I'm not saying there's necessarily a connection here, but isn't that interesting? Because here's Trafigura saying, hey, let's you know build on the west side of Africa. All very interesting. Let's continue here. Tons to go through still. We haven't even hit the nickel stories. We're going to have to speed up here. China's CMOC eyes further growth in Congo and beyond after taking cobalt crown. This is Reuters. And just a couple of lines here. Chinese rich firm CMOC Group could buy more assets in copper and cobalt rich Democratic Republic of Congo and sees further potential for growth in South America and Indonesia, an executive told Reuters on Wednesday. Quote, if there are opportunities, if there are assets that meet our criteria, of course we do consider increasing our presence in the DRC. Why not? We already have investments, end quote. Julie Yang, CMOC vice president for ESG, said in an interview on the sidelines of the Africa mining in Daba. She also added, quote, we do have ambitions to become one of the biggest copper producers in the world, end quote. CMOC's current 2024 forecast would put it seventh or eighth in the world this year. So interesting story there. Continuing on, Singshan's 2023 nickel output jumps to record high. This is Reuters via mining.com. Chinese nickel giant Tsingshan Group nickel output rose 27% in 2023 to a record 1.12 million metric tons nickel unit company data showed. So remember last week I was discussing what I thought was quite an audacious thesis, but one that was hard not to mention, this idea that maybe China was flooding the nickel market in order to take it over somewhat. 
which might sound, again, a little audacious, a little speculative, but we've kind of seen it happen over and over. See rare earths, see cobalt, see lithium. I mean, why not nickel? Most of the processing already happens, from my understanding, in China. At least it did until Indonesia put its foot down. Anyways, let's continue here. The benchmark nickel contract on the London Metal Exchange fell 45% last year in its biggest decline since 2008. Tsingshan Group will step up investment in quality projects, Chairman Zhang Guangda told an annual meeting of the board of directors held last month, according to a company post published on January 28. The Zhejiang based company was among the first Chinese producers that set up operations in Indonesia more than a decade ago, boosting production in the Southeast Asian country, which is now the world's number one nickel producer. Xingshan also holds lithium mining and processing assets in Zimbabwe. It had its first IPO in December with the listing of its battery-making subsidiary REPT Batero Energy in Hong Kong. And we know the Chinese government wants to own the electric vehicle battery supply chain And as I was hearing on a podcast last week, I mean, if you own the supply chain, you can undercut everybody, right? And already, and I think North American vehicle manufacturers and maybe European, I'm not sure about the Japanese vehicle manufacturers, but they do have to take ownership on the fact that their cars are extremely expensive compared to where they were four years ago. The last I checked, they look like they doubled in price, maybe more. If you disagree, feel free to leave a comment. You know, so not only are prices on a lot of North American vehicle manufacturers incredibly high, here the Chinese are coming in and they own the supply chain. So their costs are actually significantly lower potentially. So they can just double undercut Western vehicle manufacturing. Again, you see Ursula von der Leyen saying no You're not allowed to build your dreams. You're not allowed to put BYD to sell into Europe, you know, which is causing some tension there. Let's continue here. Glencore to sell stake in troubled New Caledonian nickel operation. So we've been hearing the last couple of weeks that the French are looking to shore up the New Caledonia nickel processing facilities and production. And now Glencore wants out. This is by Cecilia Jamazmi on the Northern Miner. Glencore said on Monday it will close and sell its stake in the loss-making Cunyambo Nickel SAS business it co-owns in New Caledonia as a sharp drop in the metals price continues to hit the industry. The Swiss miner and commodity trader said it would look for a new partner for the nickel mine and processing plant in the French territory, adding that it would leave the operation ready for a quick reopening if a new investor is found. Glencore is also seeking to sell its 49% stake in the company, KNS said in a separate statement. Quote, the pressures in the global nickel market are becoming increasingly apparent. And quote, Colin Hamilton, managing director for commodities research at BMO Capital Markets, wrote at the end of January. He continued, quote, we have noted that further temporary or permanent capacity cuts were required to balance the nickel market following last year's surplus. But it is yet to be seen whether sufficient adjustment has taken place. But let's take a step back and see what's happening. Is Indonesia stopping its nickel production? No, we're right back to the playbook, which is the West is closing down its mines. Who's going to own the nickel market? So we're kind of back to this quandary, as the FT was pointing out three weeks ago, that if the government doesn't come in and subsidize these things, they're going to close down because there's no sense for Glencore to lose money every month. And a lot of these... Companies are public companies. 
So they can't just go around losing money, you know, out of the kindness of their heart. So we're watching it happen in real time here. Let's continue. Indonesia names two Chinese nationals as suspects in nickel fire. Just kind of a weird one here. This is Bloomberg News via mining.com. Indonesia named two Chinese nationals as suspects in an investigation into a deadly blast at a nickel smelter owned by top producer Tsingshan Holding Group. The fire, which killed 21, showed the hidden cost of the Southeast Asian nation's rapid expansion of its nickel industry. Indonesia now makes more than half of the global supply thanks to a wave of Chinese investments into plants that process the metal, which have come under scrutiny due to a series of accidents at the sites. A spokesperson for the police in central Sulawesi, home to the Morowali Industrial Park where the fire took place, didn't say why they were named as suspects and identified them only by their initials. You see how sensitive this is. One was a furnace supervisor, while the other was also employed by a different firm. And continuing on, Canada Nickel plans to raise a billion dollars for processing plant. This is Reuters via mining.com. So continuing ahead, despite low prices here, Canada Nickel Company on Thursday said it's looking to raise a billion dollars to build a nickel processing plant as it seeks to position itself as an alternative supplier of the metal used in car and electric battery vehicles. The processing plant in Ontario is expected to begin production in 2027 and process 80,000 tons of nickel annually. Nickel production is currently concentrated in Asia, and the company hopes that the new plant will help increase supplies from cleaner sources. Finally, the company is in discussions with the Canadian government, the United States Department of Defense, and other partners in the battery manufacturing sector to raise the funding, CEO Mark Selby told Reuters. Well, I would call this a good news story. Because this is basically, I think, from a common sense perspective, exactly what needs to happen. You need to talk to the Canadian government. You need to talk to the United States government and the Department of Defense. And if you want nickel, they should be taking your call. And it looks like they are. So somewhat of a good news story, one could argue. And also on this idea of clean metal. Finally here, Reuters via mining.com, pressure groups sue LME for allowing trade of polluting Indonesian metal, something we've been discussing for years here. This idea of ESG metal, which could even sell at a different price. Two pressure groups have filed a legal action against the London Metal Exchange for allowing the sale on its platform of metal produced in Indonesia that they allege is polluting local rivers used by indigenous communities, they said on Thursday. The London Mining Network and the Global Legal Action Network said in a statement papers have been filed in London's High Court asking for a judicial review. They say the LME is breaching British anti-money laundering and proceeds of crime legislation. Reuters confirmed that court documents were filed at the court on Tuesday. And finally, the LME responded, quote, The LME believes that the claim filled by the London Mining Network and the Global Legal Action Network is misconceived and intends to resist that claim. So those are your news stories. Now, let's take a look at metal prices. Turning to metal prices, let's take a quick look at the bond market for context. The U.S. 10-year bond is yielding 4.17%. That is 0.02% higher than last week. So edging a little higher, but still continuing to move higher. Again, 4.17% on the 10-year. The U.K. 10-year gilt is at 4.07%, and that is 0.06% higher 
so also higher. And the Italy 10-year bond is also higher at 3.94%. That is up 0.06%. So yields moving higher across the US, UK, and Italy. Interestingly, still Italy at the bottom there in terms of yields. So good place to borrow money, apparently, relative to its peers. Turning to precious metals, gold is trading at $2,041.40 per ounce. That is a dollar higher than last week. Silver is trading at $22.94 per ounce. That is 45 cents lower than last week. Platinum is at $889.46 per ounce. That is $8 lower than last week. And wait till you see this. Palladium is at $889.19, and that is down $57 from last week. My friends, Palladium and Platinum are both at $889. They have reached parity. Something that we have been discussing here for a couple of weeks, maybe three weeks, that they're approaching parity, they are now the same price. Very interesting. Industrial metals. Copper is at $3.72 per pound. That is five cents lower than last week. Iron ore is at $128.87 per metric ton. That is seven cents lower than last week, so almost even. Aluminum is at $1.01 per pound. That is a penny higher than last week. Lead is lower at 93 cents per pound. That is four cents lower than last week. Nickel is at $7.11. That is 14 cents lower than last week. And the lowest we have seen since several years ago. We have to go to like three years ago, if I'm not mistaken here, to start seeing these kind of prices. So this is quite something. $7.11 per pound on nickel, down 14 cents. So the pain is real. Tin is at $11.96 per pound. That is 37 cents higher than last week. So a bit of a standout there with tin. Cobalt is down at $12.95 per pound. That is 27 cents lower than last week. Lithium is higher at $13.55 per kilogram. That is 28 cents higher than last week. Uranium is $6 higher at $106 even per pound. Again, that is $6 higher than last week. And zinc is at $1.06 per pound. That is $0.04 cents lower than last week. Zooming out, it seems to me that tin is really the standout there. It's noteworthy that cobalt has come down. I mean, we look at our electric vehicle battery metals here. Lithium, cobalt, and nickel just falling through the floor, really. Yeah, lithium was up a tiny bit, but really, this is dead cat bounce territory here. We're still on a 13 handle with lithium. So isn't that interesting? And again, what does that make you think of? We're back to the playbook. So very interesting there. You know, gold holding its own, I might add. And silver, you know, for the speculators, not financial advice, but frankly looking pretty attractive with a 22 handle on it. And those are your metal prices. Coming up, I'm very pleased to welcome back Ron Birnbaum back to the show. He is CEO and founder of Pear Tree. I wanted to do a follow-up interview on what Ron was discussing with new tax legislation that is being considered in Canada that would affect the flow-through share financing of exploration companies. Ron is pretty pessimistic, I would argue, as he says... Things are pretty bad right now, and they're unfortunately probably going to get a lot worse 
for the exploration sector in terms of financing. So an important interview, I would argue, within the context of this mineral security partnership discussion, MSP, where these 13 countries are trying to ally themselves and create a critical mineral supply chain. And yet the explorers who are at the very beginning of that process are really being left out in the cold. So a very important interview here with Ron Birnbaum, a great personality too, and it's just a joy always to speak to Ron. So I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did, and I will see you on the other side. Joining us today, I'm very proud to welcome Ron Birnbaum, founder and CEO of Pear Tree, back to the Northern Miner podcast. Ron, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be back. Well, it's wonderful to have you. I'm very curious to hear the latest on what you were mentioning the last time you were on the podcast, which was a pretty deep concern, I would say, on the whole flow through share structure, which is kind of getting in the weeds, but ultimately there are tax incentives in Canada for people to help invest in junior mining. You're saying there's a bit of concern with legislation that was coming in the pipeline that was back in September, I believe. Where are we now with this whole, you know, flow through share structure and, you know, legislation that was coming through the Canadian government? We're still in a position of where we have great uncertainty in, in where the tax incentives may land. The incentives themselves haven't changed, but there was a broader set of rules that were introduced back in the spring budget of 23 called Alternative Minimum Tax or AMT, which limits the ability of high net worth individuals to take all the deductions and credits that are otherwise available in the flow through regime, which gives Canada a financing advantage, at least for junior exploration. It's interesting that in the fall, the federal government brought in all their ways and means legislation in support of that spring budget, with the exception of AMT. And so holding off or indicating that they were still in consultation. This government is in desperate need of tax revenue, and they see it coming from the top four or five percent of the population in terms of adjusting essentially capital gains inclusion rates and other things. And unfortunately, it's the same individuals that fund 90% of all exploration in Canada through the flow through regime. So we're um, continue to spend our days talking to government, talking to bureaucrats, putting in submissions. <laughs> the most recently, uh, most recently on Friday of last week was the deadline for the new pre-budget uh, submissions. We got something in last week. So I think it's going to take unless they alter it. I think we're uh, we're in for um, the cycle that everybody knows we're in right now, made worse by changes in tax law. That's a disincentive to making investments in Canada, which is unfortunate. When you approach the government with these concerns, is it simply, you know, filling in questionnaires and forms to a certain degree? Like, do you get the sense that your voice is being heard? What kind of response are you getting? You know, I kiddingly wrote in an email last week that it felt like there should be a, a band set up on Parliament Hill called Deaf Ears. Maybe it's a grunge band. I'm not sure. But anyway, it made up of bureaucrats and parliamentarians. You know, I think there are lots of politicians who listen, who actually are concerned. There are people at NRCAN that are very concerned. Department of Finance mandate is go find us more money. And I think anything in support of finding more money is being supported by the government. So I think we're not... We're being heard, but I think we're being uh, disregarded. 
which is unfortunate. I think the warnings are being disregarded. So how do you reconcile that then as far as on one hand, we seem to have these multi-billion dollar critical minerals initiatives, which are trying to encourage, you know, the exploration and exploitation of critical minerals in Canada. And on the other hand, it seems to be stymied. One of the main or, you know, most enthusiastic ways of financing the exploration sector is being stymied to a certain degree. Like, how do you reconcile that? Is it just dysfunctional? Is it different parts of government not talking to each other? Like, how do you assess that? I think part of it is doctrinaire. I think the government really believes that the rich are not paying their fair share of taxes. And so sort of like uh, Venezuela under Chavez, we're editing that part out, right? <laughs> that that I think we have a, a government that really is, is out to tax the rich and then have government decide where that money is being deployed. I think I've said it before, you know, f- the, the remarkable part of flow through is that it's democracy. You know, when you think of government, the federal government collecting on personal income taxes at the top marginal rate, their top top rate is 33% in most provinces. It means they need to, when they make a billion dollar investment in a battery plant, they need three billion of taxable income to tax and take that billion dollars. And what we've been pushing for is, you know, rather than doing that, why don't you simply make that billion dollars eligible for flow through? Where you then, where, where the where the taxpayer is investing in half, and the cost of the federal government would be a third of the billion dollars. It would seem to be obvious. So part of it is, I think this government, I think most governments like to be um, paternalistic, sort of uh, hierarchical. Please, sir or madam, I want more. You come cap in hand to government. Whereas the flow through regime is very democratic. It's like here's a set of rules. If you spend it this way, go raise money, and we have junior companies able to access public money. I think it's brilliant. And yet the flow-through regime is constantly being criticized by all sorts of folks as being a tax credit system that benefits the rich to the detriment of the poor who are subsidizing it. And it just ain't true. And when you push the numbers through, you go, this is really bias that they can't seem to get over. So I think we're in for uh, difficult times made worse by this tax change. Indeed, we do hear about the difficult times out there in the exploration sector. One would think it'd be improving at this point. But just to cap off this discussion then on flow through shares and this, you know, tax incentive, how important is it in your view? I don't know if you can put a percentage on it, but for those that might not know, how crucial is this? First of all, I think it's very important. It's very crucial. And I think that even though PDAC has done a very good job of lobbying government and their submissions are excellent, I think that, you know, when you think of junior exploration companies, there just aren't enough hours in the day. And even though we have been asking people to get a hold of their members of parliament and complain about this and and, and alert them, that really hasn't happened much. I think we're going to try one last kick at the can in the next couple of weeks and launching another campaign. But to give you an example, the AMT rules, what they said is it only targets a very small group of individuals, you know, about 25,000 taxpayers in Canada, which is incredible. I mean, there are 22 million tax returns that where they pay tax, another 8 million tax returns where there's no tax. So there's 22 million people that actually file income tax returns in the data as recent as 2021. But if you look at who funds flow through, how about 90% of all flow through, which is most all exploration in Canada, is funded by across the country, funded by 14,000 taxpayers earning $250,000 or more. 
If you then look at our own example in terms of what we do and and our little space now known as charity flow through where Canadian subscribers buy flow through accessing the deductions and credits that the shares are then donated and sold largely to non-Canadian global investors. The average subscriber there is $800,000 of annual income. And that probably represents 75% of all flow through in the country. So the convergence exposure is astounding. And even though we've pointed it out, we haven't heard back yet. But that said, they haven't published the rules. But I think, you know, with a downturn in things like lithium and disinterest or no interest in investing in precious metals, this is only going to make it worse. And unfortunately, it could make it a lot worse. Fascinating. And I assume as, you know, CEO of Pear Tree, that you're in conversation. I imagine you interface at certain points with people in the mining sector in Canada. I mean, I guess we all have a sense that it's not an easy time right now, but what is your sense, you know, based on your actual experience? Again, I assume you're you're talking to people out there. What are they saying? They're basically, I think it's more wait and see. If you look at the, first of all, I mean, if you, to, just to, to bracket the, the issue for a minute. So Pear Tree in each of the last three years has done in excess of $500 million of flow through in Canada. So, and that's in, in about, I think we're 62, 63 financings a year. By this time last year, uh, we and others in the industry, in the sector at least, would have already completed a couple of hundred million dollars of flow, or at least announced it. And that number has dropped off a lot. When you talk to the, even the most mature explorers in precious metals, especially, there's a significant disconnect between the price of gold and, and the price of the shares that that explore for that gold or copper or zinc. And then we get into the criticals like lithium. That's what it's down 80 percent over last year. Depends on which pricing you look at. So everybody is holding off. I mean, last year, this time last year, two deals were announced by us, both lithium, both in Quebec. Siona, which runs a, a mine and is doing exploration in Quebec, and Patriot. And both those were, each were $50 million. And if you look at their share price, both are saying, and this is not a secret, I mean, everybody is saying the same thing. We'll wait and see. I mean, the, the cost of dilution is is significant. And at the end of the day, if you know, if you can't make the numbers work because the price of what you're what you're ultimately producing is down, you know, how do you rationalize the investment? So for a sector that is usually very optimistic, I've often said that the uh, exploration sector is delusionally optimistic. Um, I think we're starting to see real pessimism and uh, and concern. I think things are as bad or worse than you might think. What is your sense of the competitiveness then? Like, do you see any initiatives, for example, in the United States that you think maybe in Canada should be emulated? I mean, sometimes we have policymakers that do listen to this show. I mean, are there ideas that you would, you know, want to share on things maybe you see in Australia or somewhere else that you think Canada should be doing in order to encourage the exploration of minerals in Canada? Well, I think if you look at the critical mineral exploration tax credit in 2022, that's been extremely successful. The changes in the in the budget uh, also that year to incent you know everything from carbon capture to hydrogen were done in, in in consultation with the industry and in response to the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act, which is you know tens of billions of of uh, of tax dollars in the U.S. and so. The, the law did change, and very smartly, if you look at the 2022 tax credit, within 12 months, 
our little firm had already done 225 million within 12 months, 350 million was invested in, in critical minerals in Canada in the 12 months following the introduction of that tax credit as part of the flow through regime. It does work. Unfortunately, this AMT um, tax change is of general application. Flow through is particularly uh, exposed to the uh, capital gains treatment. And the government has added a couple of elements that essentially increases the minimum to over 62% in most provinces for a capital gains inclusion rate. Because it's so tailored, people don't understand it, but they're very adamant that they're going to continue doing this. The one view we would say that everybody should be clamoring about is simply carve out flow through. If you want to see one incentive continue and not be destroyed by a disincentive of general application, it's an easy carve out. I mean, it's uh, everybody is asking for the same thing. Right. So your prescription is ultimately, you know, you just take out the flow through. You guys get most of what you want anyway, and you just don't kill the exploration sector. Is that right? Exactly. 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 That said, you know, when you increase a capital gains inclusion rate from quietly without anybody realizing it, it's probably good news for the conservatives because, uh, you know, when people will realize the impact in April of 25, you know, nobody talks to their accountants. I don't talk to, 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 to our accountants other than, you know, stuff related to what we do. So you don't, you know, you, you, you trundle off and you do whatever you otherwise do and you buy and you sell and you do whatever. And then, you, you know, you send everything in in the first quarter of the year following to do your income tax return. And assuming the rules are implemented as per the budget of last year, what we're going to find is a lot of people paying a lot more tax, which you'll only realize is, is owing in April of 2025. So I, I think, um, you know, we're going we're gonna to see, I think, maybe a, a clamoring then of a change that's going to be required. Only then will people wake up. That's a much bigger number. You know, if you look at, again, if you look at the CRA website, the data comes from StatsCan. They only have 250,000 and above. They don't have it broken down, you know, 500 and above kind of thing. But even there, there's a remarkable number of individuals that earn over $250,000 taxable in this country. The promo piece by the government in introducing AMT was that there are only about 25,000 people who fall into AMT. Our investors will ask us to do calculations to say how much flow through can they buy to access the credits and deductions before they hit the AMT level and they won't buy more. Nobody pays a premium to market for the shares if they can't use the tax value associated with the premium. That number is much bigger across the board. It's not just flow through here. There's like a quarter of a million people, taxpayers in Canada, who earn more than $250,000. It's not just limited to the 25,000. In fact, it's a very small subset of individual taxpayers that fund most all of the flow through in the, in the country. So, for example, in Quebec, according to the most recent data, it's like 2,600 taxpayers fund 90% of all the exploration uh, funded through flow through. 2,600 taxpayers. So, <laughs> two thirds right. of them are our clients. Those folks are all making over $800,000. I mean, in response to the question, you know, you know wh where's the impact? It's not only going to be on flow through on an exploration, it's going to be in across the board in all investment especially investment that's subject to a capital gains tax, which in the case of flow through is the case because when you buy a flow through share for a dollar, you get a deduction. But for tax purposes, it's as if you paid zero, nil. And therefore, even if you sell the share or donate the share at 40 cents, even though you have an economic loss, you're still paying capital gains tax. If you increase the tax, it's made all the worse. 
and it's not just flow through, it's all, you know, it's all capital gains. And there we have a much broader group of people earning over $250,000. That number is, you know, quite a lot. So, you know, I'm just kind of curious, you mentioned Quebec. I mean, what is their response? Have you reached out to the provincial government there? Because my impression is that Quebec's been pretty pro-mining, it seems to me, and they've been, you know, pretty encouraging to the exploration sector in the province. Are they doing something on their side in order to, you know, kind of counteract these measures or somehow, you know, fill in the gap where maybe a gap is being created? I think Quebec is, is probably the best jurisdiction in Canada, maybe anywhere in the world in terms of understanding the interplay between economic activity and tax credits and incentives, especially for high risk activity. Their initial response was, we are going to go along with the government, the federal government with respect to the AMT rules. But I know that there are people who are now scratching their heads saying, gee, this might not work. And so we'll see. I mean, one of the things that happened, especially in Quebec uh, last year, by way of example of what you just indicated, not AMT, is that Quebec provided relief for those companies in terms of in the flow-through regime where they couldn't get to site because of the fires. And with flow-through, you have to spend it within a certain period of time. And so Quebec basically said, apply and we'll, uh, and we'll give you an extension if you couldn't get there. The problem, coming back to my, uh, to my issue about deaf ears, is that the federal government has been silent on this issue. You may remember under COVID, when you couldn't go to the sites, the uh, Department of Finance extended the timeline for spending the money that was raised. You know, in flow through, you have to spend it in a very short period of time. And Quebec has taken steps to assist the federal government, in spite of pleas by lots of people in industry and NRCAN, finance has been unresponsive. So one of the things we've asked for is an extension. Part of it is systemic. You need to change the law as opposed to uh, vesting the minister with the ability to just simply issue an order in, uh, in council. I know PDAC in the most recent pre-budget submissions have actually asked for the same thing. So um, actually asked for the same thing. They actually led the charge on this. So we'll see. But uh, that's sort of the sort of the indifference of the flow through regime by the federal government. On the one hand, we can look at the critical mineral exploration tax credit as being remarkably successful in a very short period of time. And on the other hand, indifference to any changes that may take away from that incentive and others. And just a couple of questions just to wrap up here then. Now, am I mistaken? I thought I went to one of the welcoming parties of PDAC, I think it was 2019, and I thought there was an announcement saying that flow through was permanent. Do you recollect anything like that or is that in my head? Flow through is permanent. It is a permanent fixture. What they what has been extended over the years, it used to be a one year over one year extension was the exploration tax credits. So the two that are on the books that are additive to the flow through regime, one is the mineral exploration tax credit, which is all of the precious metals, for example, all metals, most minerals. And that's a 15% credit. That's been on the books for a long, long time, but it's, it had to be extended year over year. And in that year, they extended it five years. And now the extension has come up. So one of the things that everybody's asking for is the extension again for another five years. And the critical mineral tax credit, which was brought in in 2022, comes due in 2027. So 
what most people are asking for is that the METC, the original one, be extended to 27 or both extended to 29 and leave it alone. Why you need to not build it in is beyond me other than gives the minister the ability to get up at PDAC and go, we have blessed you again with a, with a credit, aren't we special? You yeah, kind of read my that, mind. That's, that's, yeah. that's irrespective of government. That used to be yes. the sort of the let us show you how special you are. Well, exactly. I thought that's why there it was an annual thing. And, and finally, uh, just on pear tree itself. So, I mean, in a sense, I want to wrap up three questions in one, though. But like, how important is this for pear tree? How are you guys doing at pear tree? And, and how do you guys decide? I, do you have some sort of due diligence team on how to, you know, quote unquote, invest? How do you figure all this out? So just tell us a little bit about pear tree and what you guys are doing and how you're being affected. So we will be affected, but it's it's a little, you know, it's it's sort of funny. I'm uh, the original Matt. We've been around now uh, uh, since 2007. We're now more than 40 employees across the country. We're now doing, as, as I mentioned earlier, more than 500 million a year. And we have spent a lot of time over the years as the business grew, adding individuals and adding individuals for succession. I mean, I'm in my early 70s. Most of the original management team are well into their 60s. Uh, we've now hired a bunch of people, but, you know, we've been very busy and we've been wondering how to manage growth while we focus on the business as opposed to doing business. And AMT, I think, is going to do that for us this year. And so it's a, it's quieter, but it's also given us the ability to, to spend more time focusing on next gen issues, such as making sure all the systems are in place in terms of diligence. Uh, part of that next gen team is we've hired another geo who also ran AIM in BC. That's Kendra Johnson. She'll probably have my job in the fullness of time. That basically our diligence is really remarkably simple. In our format, Canadians buy flow through shares with the intention of immediately disposing of them by way of a, a donation and then fall along sale at a discount to market. So if you look at one of the examples I gave earlier, if you look at Siona, for example, our donor investors in Quebec invested. 50 million, five zero million dollars in Siona. The shares were immediately donated to a charity and then the charities sold on to global investors. And at that point, it's only a common share. And so most all the shares were bought up by Australian investors. Our diligence is really focused entirely in terms of, you know, what's important to our flow through subscribers is that the only tax risk is that the company doesn't spend the money in accordance with the rules set out in the Income Tax Act. And so we will go through the budget and look at you know, the financial wherewithal of the company and ensure that the company has a clean track record with uh, the tax authorities. But as long as they've got enough money in the till to pay the overheads that aren't covered by flow through in, in the flow through regime so that there's no tension, you know, five or six months out saying, well, we can encroach upon the monies that were earmarked for exploration. Our diligence is narrow and very specific. You know, in our view is if you have an M buyer, that's taking on the economic risk reflected as well in the in a discounted price, then really our look see is all about whether it's going to spend the money properly. And you know, generally it's easy to spend money. Indeed it is. Ron Birnbaum, founder and CEO of Pear Tree, thank you for joining us and sharing your insights on this week's Northern Miner podcast. Always a pleasure, Adrian. Thank you for having me back. Thank you again to Ron Birnbaum for joining us on this week's episode. What a fascinating narrative that's developing for us here. Africa, front and center, everything interconnected here. 
Just fascinating developments across the world here. And once again, natural resources are at the heart of this discussion. Thank you once again for joining me. If you want to help out the podcast, please leave us a review in the Apple Podcast directory. Share it with your friends. And until next week, take care.